Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Moses Horwitz, Samuel Horwitz, Jerome Horwitz, Louis Feinberg, Joe Besser, and Joe Dorita, also known as the Three Stooges. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? It was 1934, the height of the American Depression. Three vaudeville performers were stuck as second-tier comics, nothing more than buffoons toiling for their boss, Ted Healy, and even less respected when it came to salary. Billed with Ted Healy as his stooges, these three men, despite the economic uncertainty, could no longer tolerate Healy's cheap and nasty management style, exacerbated by his frequent drunken abuse. For 12 years, they performed on stage and even on film for MGM with their leader, but they all felt it was time to move on, regardless of the uncertainty. Healy foiled previous such attempts by sabotaging any potential signings with other film studios by threatening litigation. But now he believed he could replace the trio easily. He did not oppose the separation, even contractually relinquishing the name The Three Stooges. Whether apocryphal or not, one of the newly liberated comics, Mo Howard, later claimed that the morning the group officially split up, the Stooges, intent on meeting later that day to discuss their plans for the future, separated. Just as he left the front gate of MGM, Mo was approached by an agent who not only knew that the Stooges were now free agents, but also knew producer Jules White, recently appointed head of Columbia Pictures, comedy short division. Only hours after parting from Healy, Mo Howard, on behalf of the group, signed the act with Columbia. It was only a one-picture deal for $1,500, but Howard sensed that it was the opportunity the Stooges had searched for for over a decade. The story was eventually embellished to add that as he left MGM from a different exit, Stooge Larry Fine was approached by another agent who took him to Universal and a meeting with studio head Carl Lamley Jr. Within minutes, Fine signed another deal with one of the most powerful executives in the film industry. Supposedly, when all three Stooges met at Moe's apartment... They confronted a real-life scenario that resembled a typical logline of one of their eventual comedies. Not only had the Stooges signed two exclusive contracts in one day, Columbia's studio head Harry Cohn had the reputation of being one of the most ruthless negotiators and vindictively nasty individuals in Hollywood. Fortunately, the day after this debacle, it was conceded that Mo Howard signed with Columbia before Larry's signing with Universal. 
This was how the Three Stooges' 25-year relationship with Columbia Pictures, the longest comedy act contractual association in American film history, began. This connection produced over 200 films and established the Three Stooges as cult figures and an American phenomenon. Of the six individuals who eventually comprised the Three Stooges, three members came from the same family. The fourth oldest brother from this family, Moses Harry Horwitz, was born on June 19, 1897. Adopting the stage name of Mo Howard, he was the ringleader of the Stooges both during their act and in the various business affairs and negotiations that were an integral part of any autonomous show business enterprise. Initially, one of Moe's older brothers was an original member of Ted Healy and his Stooges. Samuel Horwitz, born March 11, 1895, shortened his name to Sam and received the nickname Shemp from his Eastern European mother's mispronunciation of his first name. Shemp Howard was not only an original member of the Stooges, he was also Moe's original partner when the two men first began their act as a duo. Shemp was also the first of the group to grow tired of Ted Healy's dominance, and in 1932, he decided to pursue an acting career on his own. By then, the act consisted of Moe and another comic, born Louis Feinberg, in Philadelphia on October 5, 1902. A.K.A. Larry Fine, this individual started his career as a talented violinist who Ted Healy signed up for his review. Eventually, Larry stopped performing as a musician and teamed up comedically with the two Howard brothers. After Shemp's departure and desperate for a replacement, Moe suggested his brother, Jerome Horwitz. Although legend has it that because of a lack of experience, Moe was not initially enthusiastic about Jerome, nicknamed Babe, by his family as the youngest of the five Horwitz brothers joining the Stooges. In fact, he suggested his brother to Healy. Although Babe had no real acting or comedic experience, he did spend most of his free time watching his brothers rehearsing and performing, and he was quite familiar with their act. When Ted Healy was approached about this potential addition, he suggested that Jerome shave off his wavy hair and full mustache and assume the name Curly. Somewhat quiet and reserved, Jerome Howard quickly became a mainstay of the Stooges, improvising strange mannerisms and vocal sounds that established his unique identity and popularity. These four men comprised the nucleus of the Three Stooges until 1956, when illness and death necessitated additional personnel changes. But all of this was a long way off from the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, where the Horwitz family lived and where Mo Howard grew up. Much of what he became in show business was instilled during his early childhood. Even his distinctive cereal bowl haircut resulted from his mother's penchant for letting his hair grow to shoulder length. By then, desperate for a girl, she even curled and styled his hair so that Mo was constantly teased at school by both girls and boys. Finally, tired of the abuse, he and a friend literally used a bowl to guide their attempt at a haircut. So anxious about how his mother might respond, Mo hid for hours until he finally presented himself at home. By then, his mother was so happy to see him that she allegedly didn't even mention his new hairstyle, and the distinctive fashion statement remained permanent for the rest of Howard's life. 
Although bright and initially a good elementary school student, Mo Howard had professional intentions towards acting and show business from an early age. Instead of attending school, he habitually cut class and went to the theater, eventually dropping out of high school altogether. By age 12, he was already working as a gopher at Brooklyn's Vitagraph Studios, at the time one of the largest producers of silent films in the country. He quickly got bit parts and, whenever possible, pursued various roles in small productions. He also sang in a quartet with his brother Shemp, working in a local saloon until his outraged father found out and insisted they stop such a disreputable pursuit. Both brothers continued to perform in various vaudeville roles, spending the next few years touring the country, eking out a living. In 1922, after seeing a boyhood friend named Ted Healy perform in a Brooklyn theater, Howard approached Healy and asked for a job. By then, Healy was one of the biggest stars in vaudeville, acting as a comedian and master of ceremonies for a review of singers, dancers, acrobats, and comics, and he was always looking for new talent. He hired Moe as a stooge, a plant who began heckling Healy while the MC was speaking, eventually getting on stage to continue prearranged comedic banter. When this proved successful, Healy subsequently hired Shemp Howard in a similar role, which was also a hit. But both Howard brothers got married in 1925 and decided that they needed to pursue more stable occupations. Moe tried his hand in real estate brokerage and development and briefly operated a retail establishment. The Howard's retirement from show business was short-lived. In 1929, Ted Healy reunited Moe and Shemp with another vaudeville comic, Larry Fine, for a Schubert Brothers Broadway musical effort entitled A Night in Venice. This led to a film role for both Healy and the Stooges in a 1930 Fox production entitled Soup to Nuts. The film was a dud, but Fox liked the Stooges enough to offer them a seven-year contract. Healy paid each Stooge $150 a week to appear in the movie out of his own $1,250 a week. When he heard about the Fox offer to the Stooges that did not include him, he secretly met with the Fox head of production and angrily insisted that without his agreement, Fox could not sign the Stooges. Apparently, this bluster worked because the Stooges, upon returning to Fox Studios to sign their contract, were told simply that the deal was off. They did piece together that Healy was responsible for this development, and they immediately struck out on their own, performing live shows and perfecting their uniquely physical style of slaps, eye-poking, and insults. Ted Healy watched from a distance as the Stooges' popularity grew and his attempts to replace them in his own act failed. He even unsuccessfully sued them for using his name in advertising as well as referencing A Night in Venice, but by 1932, he realized that his former act was irreplaceable and began negotiating to get back together. As business manager, Mo Howard contemplated Healy's overture and responded by requesting that Healy stop drinking as a condition of any deal. Healy immediately agreed, and the reunited act was signed to appear in a high-profile Schubert production scheduled to premiere in the autumn of 1932. Healy soon spotted a loophole that allowed him to void his Schubert contract and to accept double the salary for a competing musical production company. As the Stooges were now contractually obligated to Healy, they would also be compelled to leave the Schubert production and also take a newly reduced weekly salary. 
At this point, despite his reluctance to abandon his fellow stooges, Shemp Howard had had enough, especially as Healy continued both heavy drinking and abuse. Shemp refused to leave the Schubert Review, forcing Moe and Larry to find a replacement that ultimately turned out to be Jerome Curly Howard. Moe's youngest brother had zero onstage experience, but spent a great deal of time watching the Stooges' shows and rehearsals. Initially consigned to running across the stage dressed only in a bathing suit, Curly Howard's inexperience became an asset. His ability to improvise strange vocalizations obscuring an inability to remember his lines. Healy, in this iteration of the Stooges, toured to great success that again got the attention of Hollywood, with MGM signing them all to a one-year contract. But Healy also continued his perpetual habit of covertly making deals with other studios. Despite MGM's annoyance, agreements were struck up with both Columbia and Universal. MGM successfully blocked Columbia from any Stooge production, but Healy was more successful with Universal. He and his underlings spent two years appearing together and separately in various MGM and Universal films, much of the time as filler or last-minute substitutions if the studio's hectic production schedule warranted. Moe, Larry, and Curly's salaries remained paltry, and they were completely dependent on Healy for payment, which was unpredictable at best. It was this issue that precipitated the official breakup with Healy as his renewal with MGM approached. Realizing he could no longer continue to keep them on his personal payroll for peanuts, Healy granted an official release. His attempt to replace them with three unknowns was a failure, but that was no longer their concern. The Columbia contract signed on March 19, 1934, was typically onerous. It was for one picture. If this production proved successful enough, the studio could renew, requiring eight short comedies delivered within a 40-week period. The act had 12 weeks for personal appearances or whatever commerce they could drum up on their own. The studio had 60 days to decide on exercising the option, and although there is some historical disagreement on salary, it was probably $1,000 a week, split three ways for the duration of production. Not much, considering their films took only a few days to shoot. Moe also took the liberty at this time to have all three men sign an agreement that their official name was the Three Stooges, that Moe Howard was the manager of the group, owned the name and could replace the other two at any time, that all money received was split equally among the three, and that Moe could legally sign agreements on behalf of the act. Although this contract seemed decidedly tilted in favor of Moe, subsequent events demonstrated that entrusting Moe with much of the financial and business responsibility for the group's success was a prudent decision. Columbia quickly designated Women Haters as the Stooges' first project. They play traveling salesmen who vow never to get married or even romantically involved. This predictably does not last very long, with each stooge eventually charmed by actress Marjorie White and Larry married to Marjorie. The studio was encouraged enough by this production to greenlight additional films. The next effort, Punch Drunks, released July 13, 1934, only nine weeks after Women Haters, established techniques and a plot sequence that continued in a similar vein for the next 25 years. Moe, a boxing manager, discovers that his fighter Curly responds to the song Pop Goes the Weasel by transforming himself into an unbeatable fighting machine, knocking out anything in his path. 
Larry accompanies Curly to boxing matches and plays the tune on a violin, allowing the boxer, fighting as K.O. Stradivarius, to get a shot at the heavyweight title. Against the champion, Killer Killduff, Curly quickly is knocked out of the ring and lands on Larry, destroying his instrument. Larry frantically leaves the arena in search of some other means of providing the necessary music. He returns with a large radio that is playing Pop Goes the Weasel, allowing Curly to fight back against his opponent. Unfortunately, on the verge of a knockout, the music ends and Curly has to go back on the defensive. Moe motivates Larry by hitting him over the head with the radio, splintering the device and prompting another search for the necessary tune. This time, Larry finds a politician's truck, blaring Pop Goes the Weasel, and expropriates the vehicle, speeding back to the ring by crashing the truck through a wall. Curly responds by knocking out Killduff, but then, as the music keeps playing in the final minutes of the comedy, he also knocks out Larry and Moe. The Stooges' next film was entitled Men in Black, the title a spoof of an earlier Clark Gable 1934 film entitled Men in White. The trio play three bumbling doctors in a hospital continually paged over the intercom with the line, Calling Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard. Patients are subjected to various degrees of incompetence, with at least one victim getting tools sewn up inside of him during an operation. The film ends with the Stooges destroying the intercom, finishing it off by firing bullets into it, and then raising their weapons, loudly declaring, For duty and humanity. Only their third film for Columbia, the film was shot in only three days and released on September 28, 1934. It was nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Short Subject Comedy category, the only Stooge film to ever receive this accolade. Although the film did not win in the category, it established the Stooges at Columbia as a permanent fixture, their films already very popular. Their salary was increased, but this contractual process was manipulated annually at the highest levels of Columbia. The group's winning formula of combining topical plot lines with slapstick routines continued with Three Little Pigskins, the Stooges involving football-related scenes. This film also included an aspiring actress named Lucille Ball. Production involved problems that underlined how the Stooges' on-screen antics prompted injuries like a broken leg when Curly fell down a dumbwaiter and Larry losing a tooth to a too-realistic punch in the face. Columbia mulled over the concept of expanding the Stooges' performance into longer feature-length films, but this idea was rejected. The group felt that sustaining their type of humor over 70 to 90 minutes was not possible. They made the conscious choice to stick to 18 to 20-minute two-reel shorts and limited any appearances in feature films to brief cameos. The Stooges supplemented their screen careers with annual personal appearance tours, appearing at movie theaters before a feature film was shown. Their stage shows eventually evolved into appearances at the London Palladium and other UK venues and an extended Broadway appearance in 1939 that ran for over 120 shows. While the Stooges hit their stride on stage and on the screen, their former partner Ted Healy fell victim to one of the strangest and most scandalous incidents in Hollywood history. The circumstances and even the date of the fracas that killed Healy is unclear. The possible involvement of MGM in covering up the details 
typical of the studio's ability to diffuse any scandal involving any of its stars, in this case, Wallace Beery. Although some accounts have Healy getting involved in a barroom brawl on Tuesday, December 21, 1937, it is unlikely that the club where this is alleged to have taken place, the Sunset Strip's Café Trocadero, would have attracted the participants mentioned as patrons on a weeknight only days before Christmas. Most likely on Sunday, December 19th, another version has it that a drunken Healy celebrating the birth of a son got into a parking lot altercation at the Trocadero with several other guests, including MGM star Wallace Beery, Hollywood agent and the possibly mobbed up Pat DeChico, and a then unknown named Albert Broccoli, a relative of DeChico and an eventual producer of James Bond films. Whether Healy was beaten by all or any of these men or anyone else was never ascertained, and Healy died at his home on December 21st, possibly from the beating administered days earlier. Despite his wife's demands for an official investigation, Healy's autopsy stated that he died of a heart attack and also suffered from nephritis, resulting from his severe alcoholism, and his family eventually accepted that death was due to natural causes. But MGM's legendary ability to eliminate scandal may have obscured what actually happened. Despite Healy's considerable income during his career, he died broke, his wife needing help to even pay for his funeral. The Stooges were in Grand Central Station in New York, getting ready to board a train for a benefit performance in Boston when Mo Howard got the word about Healy from a New York Times reporter. Although shocked and stunned, the Stooges continued their tour and got the details and rumors about Healy's death when they returned to Hollywood. Unlike Healy, who faded into obscurity after his death, the Stooges only became more famous. But their former partner's passing had a great impact on all of them, especially Moe, who supposedly swore off alcohol for several decades. It was not coincidence that allowed the Stooges to continue to churn out consistently entertaining product at the required rate of eight films per contracted year. Behind the scenes, their seemingly madcap antics were orchestrated by producer Jules White, who, with directors Del Lord and Edward Burns, recycled numerous vaudeville routines and gags that were surprisingly scripted with limited improvisation. White was also keen on a limited number of takes, his expertise also evidenced in the speed and tiny budgets for the typical Stooge film. With almost assembly line precision, White whittled productions down to a 16-minute film shot in a few days at a cost that averaged $27,000. It was also White that helped introduce one of the mainstays of Stooge humor, pie-throwing, which actually did not occur until the Stooges' 43rd film, entitled Three Sappy People. As the everyman losers that they typically portrayed as phone repairmen, they somehow wind up at an upper-crust birthday party honoring a proper southern belle. To instigate the pie-throwing sequence, Jules White instructed an off-screen production assistant to throw a pie at the actress while she was laughing uproariously. A direct hit wound up practically choking her, but White used that and the entire ensuing melee in its entirety, calling it one of the funniest things he had ever seen. Another critical behind-the-scenes element was provided by sound effects editor Joe Henry, who worked with an entire library of effects, 
loved the Stooges films and seemed to have an endless variety of sounds to heighten pokes, slaps, hair pulling, and slapstick to amplify the laughs. White eventually had so much confidence in Henry's post-production sound capabilities that he never bothered with input, confident that the sound man understood exactly what effect was necessary, a punch to the stomach, Massive tufts of hair pulled from Larry's head, a fireplace poker cracked over a skull, or a limb bent improperly. Whatever the visual, Henry came up with a sound that was additionally hilarious and another major aspect of stooge humor. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Three Stooges. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Three Stooges Scrapbook by Jeff Lenberg and Joan Howard Moore, and The Three Stooges, an Illustrated History by Michael Fleming. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer?, if you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>